Hey everyone, hope you're having a great day so far. So, I've been having a lot of fun lately watching The Mandalorian on Disney+. The show is a very cool mix of old-style western movies with a touch of underground crime drama placed in a world full of spaceships, killer robots, and aliens. And of course, Baby Yoda. It doesn't get much cooler than this, really. The season isn't over yet, but already we've gotten hints and tidbits of the new lore and a sense of a much wider galaxy and history to explore post-Return of the Jedi. So, for today, I thought I'd go over 10 interesting facts about the bounty hunter known simply as the Mandalorian or Mando, at least until we know further. Now once the show ends, or even maybe once season 2 ends, I might come back and redo this video with more information that we've been given, but I'm going to cram as much as we know into this one, including canon information from Rebels and Clone Wars and other content. First up at number 1, he's a foundling. We've heard of younglings before, but what's a foundling? Well in the show we sort of have both. The Mandalorian, who I'm going to refer to as Mando, and Baby Yoda are both orphans, and it's this shared experience that makes such a hardened, tough guy bounty hunter risk everything to protect the tiny green ball of cuteness. The debate over who or what Baby Yoda is will continue in the fan community, of course, until we learn more about him. Who is Baby Yoda? We know that he's a he, as Dr. Pershing referred to him as a he. Could he be a Grand Master species, or could he just be a regular Yoda species? Are there tears in the Yoda species, or is there any relation to Yoda at all? Maybe he's something entirely different which I highly doubt. Or perhaps the little fella is Yoda's clone, indeed. Now, as we'll find out in time, we know that he is 50 years of age and still a baby and strong in the Force. So, if the Jedi Order as it existed in the Old Republic had still been around, they would have taken in the cute little frog eater and made him a youngling to be trained as a Jedi. And who knows, maybe the Mando will eventually hand him over to whatever Jedi Order Luke Skywalker is forming at this particular post-Return of the Jedi period. Or maybe he'll become a Mandalorian himself, a Yoda Mandalorian. What we do learn though through the series is that the Mando was and is a foundling. And apparently, similar to the Jedi, the Mandalorians take in children and train them in their way of life too. But while the Jedi only took in Force-sensitive children through the consent of their parents, the Mandalorians take in and adopt children who have been orphaned through battle. As they did with the Mando, whose parents were killed by the battle droids during the Clone Wars when he was just a kid. Shortly after this, he was taken in by the tribe. The Mandalorians take in these foundlings to further their line, and because they want to assure that line stays strong, they only adopted children who display a will to not just live, but to fight. Number two, Carbonite. Did Anakin Skywalker or Darth Vader change the bounty hunter industry forever? When we first met the Mando and see him collect the bounty on the blue-skinned Mithril on some backwater ice world, he offers his mark this option. I can bring you in warm or I can bring you in cold. I first took that to mean alive or dead, but there is also a more literal interpretation as later on board the Mando's ship, when the Mithril pretends to need to use the restroom, but is actually trying to escape, the Mando quickly puts him into Carbonite before he can do anything. In fact, we see the Mando has placed a lot of marks in Carbonite. Could that be what he meant by bringing him in cold? Regardless, is this standard procedure for bounty hunters? There is a lot of conflicting lore out there about Carbonite, but if we take legends out of it, I believe, and please leave comments if you know otherwise, that the first time carbonite freezing was used on any living beings was during the Clone Wars, when Anakin Skywalker was sent on a mission to infiltrate an impenetrable prison the Separatists had captured, called the Citadel. 
which had been constructed to hold rogue Jedi. His mission was to rescue a Jedi Master named Evan Peel. The plan, devised by Anakin's involvement, reprogrammed battle droids, but also placed himself, Obi-Wan, and their clone troopers into carbonite to fool their enemies' life-form detectors. It was an unorthodox plan that was very successful, and one that he repeated again when as Darth Vader used Han Solo as a guinea pig to test if the freezing process would work without killing the scruffy-looking nerf herder. Even years after the Clone Wars, to freeze a living being was not what Carbonite was designed to do. Vader wanted to freeze Luke alive to present to the Emperor. So how did it go from this experimental, dangerous procedure to the standard bounty hunter methodology? And is it? Was it Boba Fett who introduced it to the bounty hunter community, or is this something unique to Mandalorians? I guess we're gonna find out more about this. But what is certain is that our Mando definitely does use Carbonite Freeze. Number 3. The Mandalorian Ship Speaking of Mando's ship, the Razor Crest, other than housing Carbonite Frozen bounties, it was a pre-Empire gunship, once used to patrol local territories for the Republic military. The ship's minimalist interior, with a simple room for the pilot, his weapons and whatever gear needed to bring the bounties back, dead or alive, is very much based on the Western aesthetic and shows how the Mando only uses what he needs to do his job and survive. The Razorcrest is in many ways an extension of the Mando and functions as his main form of transportation and living quarters. Also, I believe when we see the ship's toilet that it's the first time that particular throne has really been shown in Star Wars. The design of the ship itself is perhaps inspired by the Jaster Mareel, Jango Fett's amphibious interstellar assault transport ship that he had before acquiring the iconic Slave One. Number 4. Bounty Puck This unique useful device that made its first appearance on the show is a bounty puck, or simply a puck. It's a small device that can project holographic images accompanied by the name and the price of the bounty. The Bounty Hunters Guild hands these pucks out to their bounty hunters. If a hunter accepts a puck, that means they accept the job. So. When the Mando accepted the puck of the Mon Calamari nobleman's son while asking the guild representative, Grief Karga, about the fate of Baby Yoda, he actually ended up breaking the bounty hunter code in two ways. The first was getting involved with the baby, and the second, unless we see otherwise in some upcoming episode, he took a puck but never tried to do the job and hunt down the young noble fishman. Number 5. The bounty Hunter Code So, what is this code exactly? Well, the Bounty Hunter Code, or the Code of the Guild, was developed in order to modify the behavior and conduct of the Bounty Hunters in the Guild, by having them follow a certain set of rules for their protection, and the protection of their fellow Bounty Hunters. For instance, it was forbidden for a Bounty Hunter to slay another Hunter, unless there was a bounty on that Hunter, or steal another's bounty. Also, once a job was accepted, once a puck was chosen, in other words, a bounty hunter only needed to know the target and if the client wanted them dead or alive. Any information that had nothing to do with completing the mission was irrelevant. So, when the Mando asked his Imperial Remnant client what their plans were for the child, he was in clear violation of the code. Number 6. Mandalorian Symbol and Clan Emblems A circle with a piece of wheat across it, followed by a teardrop in the upper left corner and the signet of a Mandalorian warrior's clan on the lower right is the crest found on most Mandalorian armor, along with the emblem of an elongated skull, or Krybes as it is known in Mandoa, the native tongue of the Mandalorians, 
which is commonly believed to be a representation of a mythosaur. The mythosaur were creatures believed to be even larger than the legendary crate dragons of Tatooine, and were ridden by the Mandalorians of old. A symbol of the mythosaur can be found by the entrance to the Mandalorian armor's enclave. The Ugnaught, Kuil, brought the creatures up when he scolded the Mando for trying to give up riding the Blurg on the planet Arvala 7. If his ancestors could ride magnificent creatures like mythosaurs, then surely a Blurg should be no challenge. But what is also interesting is that after receiving enough Beskar steel for the armorer to forge him a whole new armor set, the Mando refused to have her add a Mudhorn signet to the suit, claiming it wasn't honorably earned, that an enemy helped him, but also showing us that he has no clan marking. Is that because he was a foundling? Or is there some other reason that he has no clan signet? If the Mando is a man without a clan, he is still considered part of the tribe. What the distinction is remains unclear at the moment. Number seven, tracking fob. So, every bounty hunter seems to have a tracking fob. What are they? Well, to put it very simply, they are small handheld devices used by bounty hunters to track down their target or targets throughout the galaxy. But how do they work? Well, up front, they seem to be very similar to radio trackers. They have a loop-style antenna, they appear to have a limited range, but blink red and admit a beeping noise when they are within a radius of their quarry. Now, the range might be limited, but it seems to kind of expand across the galaxy. Or at least so I think for now, as the Mando was found on the mysterious planet where he met Cara Dune. The blinking and the beeping increases in speed and tempo the closer they get, kind of like a game of uh, hot or cold. However, there's probably more sophistication and complexity of the fobs than first meets the eye. For instance, when the Mando arrives with the tracking fobs for the blue-skinned Mithril and whoever the others were that he put in Carbonite, he drops the trackers on the table in front of his guild contact, Reef Karga. But when Karga attempts to pay for the bounties with Imperial credits, the Mando withdraws the fobs. Why? Karga's men are already taking the Carbonite prisoners off his ship. What does he need the fobs for? The job is done, unless they are much more complicated than earthbound radio trackers. It hasn't really been explained yet, so I'm just theorizing here, but when the Mando was sent off after Baby Yoda, he first needed to know the target's last known location. Then he got part of its chain code, whatever that is. And with that, he was able to track Baby Yoda with the fob. The bounties he was after in the beginning were bail jumpers, so it could make sense that some sort of tracking device could have been implanted into former inmates. And if Baby Yoda is involved in some sort of imperial scientific experiment, they could have placed a tracker inside of him years ago. I mean, he's been around for 50 years. But why are the fobs important to return with the bounty? It could be that it's not tracking some sort of transmitter implanted in the targets, but instead is somehow intoned to their genetic code. I mean, the Mando knows Baby Yoda is being tracked by Fob, so why hasn't he removed the transmitter? He went to Sorgan to find a sanctuary for little Yoda. Ended up fighting an ATSD, but had to flee with the child as he was being hunted down by other bounty hunters. So, again, like I said, why didn't he just get rid of the transmitter? Perhaps it's because he can't, if there is no transmitter, and instead, they are tracking the baby's genetic code. That could also be why the fobs were so important to Grief Karga. It wasn't enough to hand the carbonite marks over to whoever the clients were, the fobs were proof of their identity. So, 
a security measure to make sure that the bounty hunters didn't just capture random innocents and claim them as targets. That's just a theory. Number eight, the Camtono. After the Mando handed Baby Yoda over to the Imperial Remnant, he was given as payment a cylindrical security container called a Camtono, which was full of Beskar steel. In canon, the Camtono is used to store precious metals or spice and is easily transportable as it has a handle to carry it with. However, the design of the Camtono is actually a funny little wink the Mandalorian showrunners gave observant fans. It's an ice cream maker, well, designed after one at any rate. Its origins actually lie in a brief scene from The Empire Strikes Back when Lando Calrissian turns against the Empire and warns the citizen of Cloud City about the Imperial takeover. During the evacuation, there is a background actor who runs through one of the corridors holding on tight to a prop that is clearly an ice cream maker. The character's name is Will Rowe Hood, a miner, but many know him simply as the ice cream guy. Anyways, in Legends and Canon, whenever Will Rowe Hood shows up, he is always holding onto that ice cream maker, which has now inspired the Mandalorian's Camtono. Number nine, Boba Fett was in the first episode. Blink and you miss it, or even don't blink and you might miss it. Unless you pump up the brightness on your screens, you aren't likely to have spotted the greatest bounty hunter in the galaxy, for now. Django's clone son was on the Disney streaming show, or at least a Mandalorian wearing his armor. And that's really the point of this one. A lot of people are saying, well, Boba was in the show, but you know, bounty hunters look quite similar in a lot of senses, and who knows where this guy got his armor, who knows if it's actually Boba Fett, I highly doubt it is, and if it is, well, we're gonna find out, but I really don't think that they would reveal him like that, just in the background a little bit. Now, it hasn't been confirmed yet that it was Boba Fett, nor even if he survived the Starlack Pit at all, as he did in Legends, but if you pause the pilot episode at the 18 minute and 31 second mark, you'll spot a very iconic figure. Boba is inside, or the lookalike Boba is inside the underground location of the Hidden Tribe. He's a figure that moves in the shadows behind the Mandalorian, which might be symbolism. The design and color scheme of the armor matches Boba Fett's. even has a blaster dent on the upper right of the helmet in the same spot we have seen on Fett before. Again, it could be Boba Fett or someone who is just wearing his armor, or maybe just a little nod to his character. Now, there is a man named Cobb Vanth, who is the sheriff of a small Tatooine town called Freetown. He wears a set of acid-damaged Mandalorian armor that he took from some Jawas. Could the great pit of Karkoon, the Sarlacc, have spit out Boba Fett's armor and the tiny scavengers found it? Or perhaps the Mandalorian is neither Boba nor Cobb. We shall see. For regardless, I don't think Return of the Jedi will mark the last time that we see Boba Fett. Number 10. Mandalorians can't remove their helmets. We learn through the series that Mando has never removed his helmet in front of anybody since he was taken in by the tribe as a child. Why can't he? Well, the short answer is that he can, but if he does, he'll never be able to put it on again, meaning he will no longer be considered a Mandalorian. An interesting rule, but is it an ancient Mandalorian tradition, or specific to the tribe, or perhaps just to foundlings, is that in both legends and canon, such as seen in the Clone Wars and Rebels, the various Mandalorians in those shows occasionally take off their helmets. Not just when they're alone or with other Mandalorians, but allies and enemies alike. There doesn't seem to be any issue with it. So why is it for the Mando? Why does it have to do with the Purge, which devastated the Mandalorian clans under Imperial occupation? The few that remained had to go into hiding. Is that what led them to keep their helmets on? But the occupation happened after Revenge of the Sith. And clearly, Mando was taken in by the Mandalorian sometime between Attack of the Clones and Episode 3. 
So, this was far before the Imperial occupation of Mandalore, and he claims never to have removed the helmet in public since he became one of the tribe. So it doesn't really quite work out, but what is known is that the Mandalorians considered their armor to be part of themselves, an extension, rather, like a second skin. Their armor is tied to their clan identity and sense of belonging. Whatever the answer is, I'm loving the world building and looking forward to learning more about our mysterious bounty hunter with a soft spot for cute little frog-eating creatures. Well, I hope you enjoyed this top 10 interesting facts video about the Mandalorian so far. I'm going to make another updated one, uh, maybe at the end of this season or at the end of season 2, uh, once we get a lot more information. If you enjoyed this top 10 and you want to see more like this, I really love making these. Throw a thumbs up on this video and I'll catch you in the next one. Until then, remember... The Force will be with you, always.